To be a Jew begins by affirming the realization that one has been born into a family. Every Jew is meant to come to the conclusion that Judah ultimately achieved, that we are always bound by brotherhood to the other children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 12, Rembrandt and the Rabbis, Jacob, Joseph, Dina, and Judah. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 2015, the Technion Institute in Israel announced the creation of the Nano Bible, all of Hebrew scripture inscribed on a microchip no larger than a grain of sugar. It is indeed extraordinary to etch out the entire Torah on a microscopic speck, but it is perhaps even more extraordinary for an artist in Amsterdam in the 17th century to etch out a tiny picture on a six-inch copper plate and to produce thereby a print that provides a key in a single image to so many stories in Genesis, as well as a greater glimpse of the very vulnerability of the human soul. Today, we present an unusual and extended episode. Extended, as this Sunday is the Jewish morning day of Tisha B'Av, when traditionally normal Torah study does not take place. Unusual because it is almost entirely inspired by the small etching of Rembrandt that has been sent to all of you. Tolstoy tells us that all happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Whether or not happy families are indeed all alike, for this has been challenged by many, Tolstoy's adage is worth keeping in mind when, together, we study an etching by Rembrandt that depicts what is for us the ultimate example of the unhappy family, that of Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. It is a tragic tale of violence and kidnapping, terrible trauma spurred by Joseph's dreams, which he relates to his family. This is the moment that we see before us, but Rembrandt does much more than capture a single episode. Instead, he chooses to give us this scene with all of the members of Jacob's family crowded into what became a very small print, teaching us thereby that in order to truly understand the Joseph tale, we must first engage the biblical stories that occurred earlier. Rembrandt, in other words, seeks to give us in this small space a complete portrait, not only artistically but also psychologically, of the family of Jacob. If we look at the print carefully, we will notice that Rembrandt is not able to include all of Joseph's brothers in the image. We can count nine in all with the hand of another visible on the right. This is because other members of Jacob's family have also been included, so Rembrandt has taken up space adding other figures in the picture, including the woman in the bed in the top part of the etching. This, of course, is Leah, Jacob's first wife, the mother of most of the men in the picture, but not, of course, the mother of Joseph who was born to the beautiful Rachel, Jacob's first and only love. What is Rembrandt doing putting Leah here? The answer, of course, is that though Leah has seemingly nothing to do with the story of Joseph, she actually has everything to do with the story of Joseph. Because the hatred of Joseph by his brothers stems from the fact that he is the son of the beloved wife and therefore he has Jacob's preferential love. Leah, as we have previously seen, was desperate for her husband's affection but to no avail. And in including not only Leah, but also her bed, Rembrandt clearly intends to remind us of how Leah desperately bargained with her sister, the beloved wife Rachel, in order to get Jacob to her bed. Genesis 30, 14. 
And Reuben went in the days of the wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Give me, I pray thee, of thy son's mandrakes. And he said to her, Is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? And wouldst thou take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, Therefore he shall lie with thee tonight for thy son's mandrakes. And Jacob came out of the field in the evening, and Leah went out to meet him and said, Thou must come unto me, for indeed I have hired thee tonight with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. Thus Rembrandt gives us Leah in her bed, and the man standing at her bedside is her aforementioned eldest son, Reuben. Yet, for all these endeavors by Leah, it was Rachel who remains loved. Suddenly, as Jacob enters the land of Israel following his encounter with Esau, tragedy befalls his beloved. Rachel dies while giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. And one might have thought that Jacob's love would now be transferred to the wife that has borne him most of his children. But instead, it is refocused on Rachel's oldest child. Genesis 37, 4. And his brethren saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, and they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Leah, then, is in Rembrandt's picture because at every moment in the saga of Joseph and his brothers, she is always in the picture. It is her hurt that drives her children, her rejection at the hands of Jacob, and she is present physically or not in every moment in this tale. The inclusion of Leah by the artist then makes perfect sense. But who, however, is the young girl in the image sitting at Jacob's feet? This must be Jacob's only daughter, Dina, who we are informed by Scripture was born by Leah. Why has Rembrandt introduced her here? Rembrandt is hinting again that only when we review Dina's story can we turn to that of Joseph. For here, too, in her terrible tale, we also find family fissures that will ultimately explode in the chapters yet to come. This is Genesis chapter 34. And Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Chivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. Note, ladies and gentlemen, that here it is emphasized that Dina is the daughter of Leah. After this assault upon her, Shechem proposes peace, and Jacob is inclined to agree. Dina's brothers take a different approach. After all, the residents of Shechem's city circumcised themselves as a signal of covenant with Jacob's family. We are informed in verse 45. And it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took each man his sword and came upon the city unresisted and slew all the males. And they slew Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dina out of Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. Now it is important here to note how Simon and Levi or Shimon and Levi are described. They are the sons of Jacob and also Dina's brothers. What is meant here is that they are Dina's full brothers. They are also sons of Leah by Jacob, and that is essential in understanding their anger that they then express. For when Jacob berates them, they are unapologetic. The next verse. And Jacob said to Simon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me to make me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanian Prezi, and I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. But they said, Shall he deal with our sister as with a harlot? Here the brothers' words are noteworthy and tell us that the source of their pain is about Dina, but not only Dina, 
Shall our sister be made a harlot, they say. Not shall your daughter be made a harlot. Their anger toward Jacob is acute. Why, they are saying, were you not acting on behalf of our sister, daughter of our mother who still lives? Why are you focused on the wife that you loved who is now dead? Are we not also your children, they are implicitly asking. Why are you acting, they are implicitly saying, as if our sister is not fully your daughter? Dina's story, then, is profoundly connected to that of Joseph, for she is the most acute symbol of the emotional pain that her brothers are experiencing in the face of their mother's rejection. She is the ultimate harbinger of the rage that Jacob's preference for Rachel and her progeny will provoke. Rembrandt then places Dina in this scene because she is a potent symbol of the violence that has exploded before and is about to explode again. Thus, in this very small etching, Rembrandt gives us a powerful picture of apparent domesticity that is actually an emotional tinderbox about to combust. And this occurs when Joseph, the favored son, tells his family his vision, what seems to them to be a dream of domination. Genesis 37, verses 7 and 9. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves came and bowed down to mine. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have again dreamed a dream, and behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars bowed down to me. And he told it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. The brothers' hatred lead them to contemplate murder, and Joseph is kidnapped and placed in a pit. It is because of Judah that Joseph ultimately escapes death. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the long robe with sleeves that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they came down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers heeded him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. This, then, is Judah, the man for whom Judaism is named, as we first find him in the Bible. The statement is remarkable in its cowardice. Judah saves his brother's life and references their relationship. But he does it not fully in the name of justice, but also, perhaps, in pursuit of profit. What profit is it? Let us sell him instead. It is an exercise not purely in morality, but also utility. The brothers then lied to their father, informing Israel that Joseph had been killed by an animal. Verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe and killed a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the log robe with sleeves and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Recognize whether it is your son's robe or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob rent his garments and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. We are thus presented with Joseph in exile and his brothers, all partners in crime, left with a bereaved and inconsolable father. Looking back now 
we realize that almost all of Genesis has been marked by familial infighting. Cain and Abel, Sarah, Hagar, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Judah and Joseph. When the family of Abram begins to form into a people, when the sons of Jacob emerge as the Bnei Yisrael, the 12 tribes of Israel, they do so as a family that seems riven by discord, jealousy, and hate. To read Genesis is to be reminded of what a comedian once said about Churchill's famous speech, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the forest, we shall fight in the hills. The comedian said, I thought Churchill was describing my family vacation. Fights between brethren are everywhere in the founding of Abraham's family. And in understanding this, we must remember that the tales of Genesis are not only about individuals. These characters are also ancestors and archetypes of nations and tribes that are yet to be. And the tales are important because the interactions of Jacob with those excluded from the covenant reflect profound lessons about Israel's future relations with the rest of the world, and the disharmony within the family Israel itself allows us to glean something essential about the nature of Israelite identity, or to speak in more modern parlance, what precisely it means to be a Jew. And it is the latter theme that is about to unfold as we learn more about the man who suggested selling Joseph, the man from whom our own identity today is derived to some extent, the man named Judah. All of a sudden, the text appears to pause abruptly from telling Joseph's tale and focuses on this very other brother. Chapter 38. It was at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned into a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He married her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. Again she conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah, we are informed, left his brothers, went down from them, and wedded a woman, a Canaanite, separated himself from his family, and seemingly founded a new one. Coming immediately and jarringly after the tale of Joseph's kidnapping, The small sentence that he went down from his brothers is rife with meaning. Its intent is obvious. Why Judah wished to leave his brothers is unclear, though we can easily guess. Perhaps burdened by the guilt of what he himself had done, he was desperate to escape the daily familial reminder of his crime. Or perhaps, aghast at the even more monstrous and murderous intent of many of his brethren, he wished to no longer be associated with them. Whatever his motivations, The text makes clear that Judah seeks to be no longer associated with his family. He seemingly starts a new life and a new identity. His wife bears him three sons, and the first marries a woman named Tamar. Judah's eldest son, we are informed, led an evil life, further evidence perhaps that Judah had ceased to raise his family in the tradition of Abraham. And so the Almighty brought about the eldest son's demise, leaving Tamar a widow. Biblical society at that time practiced an institution known as leveret marriage, in which one married his brother's widow in order to produce children as a commemoration and continuation of one's dead kin. Thus Judah's second son Onan is instructed to marry Tamar. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled his seed on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. Onan, it would seem, had little interest in brotherly loyalty and love, and we ought not to be surprised by his actions, for after all, he had been provided with no model of brotherly loyalty. He had been born and raised by a father that had himself abandoned his brothers. The Almighty, angry at Onan's actions, brought about his death as well, leaving Judah's final son, Shelah, designated for Tamar. Judah, Unwilling to assume that it was he himself who had brought about the state of affairs, blamed Tamar. 
and told his daughter-in-law to wait until his youngest grew older, though he had absolutely no intention of actually marrying her to Shayla. And while the modern reader may find the institution of Leveret marriage difficult to understand, the question here being raised by the Bible is, again, what is marriage for? This question has most recently been examined by the filmmaker Rama Burstein, who grew up a secular Israeli but ultimately embraced Haredi Judaism, and wrote and directed a Hasidic romance, a film that she titled L'Maleat HaChalal, Fill the Void. The movie is one of the best ever produced in Israel, and it is one of the most sophisticated films exploring religious themes made in recent history. There, we have a parallel story of a young woman whose sister dies in childbirth, and who then is asked to marry her brother-in-law in order to help raise her sister's child. The film unapologetically embraces the notion that marriage is not only about love, but also about family obligation and perpetuation, and that a shared commitment to these values can make love itself deeper. Burstein in the film reveres herself to be a sort of orthodox Jane Austen, giving us a story of human relationships that radiantly reveals universal human themes in this Hasidic story. The film received rave reviews around the world, and when you watch the movie and then return to our text, you realize that the story of Tamar being denied a husband is also a story that is raising questions of family loyalty. It is meant as further evidence that Judah has not yet learned the lesson of his misdeeds in the Joseph story, and that he has further now sought to sever all family connections from his past. Leon Cass, commenting on this tale and on Leveret marriage, puts it this way in his commentary on Genesis. Quote, If we are willing to set aside for the moment our current sensibilities, we may be able to discover and even appreciate the principles that inform this ancient custom. For details aside, the practice of leveret marriage seeks to uphold what is centrally important in marriage altogether. The heart of marriage, Cass further writes, especially but not only biblically speaking, is not primarily a matter of the heart. Rather, it is primarily about procreation and even more about transmission of a way of life. Husband and wife, whether they know it or not, are incipiently father and mother, parents of children for whose moral and spiritual education they bear a sacred obligation. In Leveret Marriage, Cass adds, all these crucial principles are defended. A man serves literally as his brother's keeper. He refuses to allow his brother to die without a trace. Also, he refuses to nullify his sister-in-law's marriage, vindicating her claim to motherly fulfillment within her marriage. Taking seriously the commandment be fruitful and multiply, Cass concludes, Leveret Marriage elevates the importance of progeny above personal gratification and hence the importance of lineage and community above the individual, end quote. It is precisely the values of familial roots and continuity that Judah seeks to reject. Tamar, therefore, is a widow abandoned, unable to marry another, waiting for Shelah, and denied the opportunity to bear children. She ultimately takes action, pretending to be a prostitute and seducing Judah, whose own wife has died. The conversation between herself and Judah at this time is critical to understanding what later occurs in the story. Tamar in the guise of a prostitute demands of Judah an Eiravon, a pledge ensuring his ultimate payment. Genesis 38, 16. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He went over at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? 
He answered, I will send you a kid from the flock. And she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went to her, and she conceived by him. The act results in a pregnancy. The society in which she lived assumes that the pregnancy indicated that Tamar has had relations with a non-family member, a violation of the obligation of leveret marriage, an act in that particular age that was considered akin to adultery. Judah's reaction is instantaneous and brutal. Take her out that she may be burned. And we may imagine that Judah feels at this moment more than moral indignation. Tamar's death would allow Shelah to marry whomever he wished and would free Judah of the burden that in his eyes was his daughter-in-law. Tamar is then brought before the regional court in order to be executed. It is at this point that Tamar produces the collateral that she has been given. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Recognize, please, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Now at this point, ladies and gentlemen, Judah has two choices. He can easily pretend ignorance, claiming no knowledge of the objects Tamar has produced. Tamar and her unborn child would be killed, and the story of Judah's embarrassing encounter with a roadside prostitute would die with her. But this is not the course that Judah takes. Unknowingly, Tamar has hit upon the exact words that stab most deeply and sharply at Judah's conscience. For these, as many have noted, were the exact words that he and his brother had used in presenting the blood-soaked colorful coat to their father. Recognize this, please. And so it is easy to imagine all the associations that emerge in his mind with Tamar's plaintive appeal. Do you not recognize, Judah, that you have repeated your sin? Do you not recognize that you have once again ignored the bonds of brotherhood, rejected all fealty to family? At this point, Judah takes the difficult but righteous path. Verse 26, Then Judah acknowledged them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Judah's painful confession saves Tamar, and the story concludes with the birth of Tamar's twins. The Bible then abruptly brings us back to Joseph, to his tale in Egypt. We are able, at this point, to decipher that Judah's decision before the court is not only the correct one, but is also the manifestation of an extraordinary change within himself. For as the tale continues, and the brothers will come before Joseph in Egypt, he, Judah, will be among them. Indeed, he, Judah, will ultimately lead them. Judah seems to have returned to his family following the Tamar episode. He has rejoined his brethren. And as we shall see in later lectures, the man who suggested selling his brother will ultimately follow the Tamar story by embodying the familial loyalty that he has now learned and will ultimately help thereby to heal the rift with Joseph as well. And thus, ladies and gentlemen, does another link between Judah and the name Judaism reveal itself. Judaism is a faith founded on familial identity. Or, to put it another way, God, in bringing the faith later to be known as Judaism into the world, chose to do it by choosing Abraham to start a faithful family rather than an international movement. As such, if Judaism is ultimately linked to Judah, It is in part because its first premise is essentially the lesson that Judah learns. 
To be a Jew begins by affirming the realization that one has been born into a family. Every Jew is meant to come to the conclusion that Judah ultimately achieved, that we are always bound by brotherhood to the other children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In that sense, no matter what tribe from which we derive, we are all Judah. We are all Jews. Fascinatingly, it is not only Jews who identified with Judah's legacy of failing and then repenting. If we return to Rembrandt's print, we realize, as art historians note, that we are able to identify at least two of Joseph's brothers in the image. The most prominent, standing next to his mother's bed, is, as we mentioned, presumably the oldest, Reuben, who we know served his mother loyally, found her the flowers that brought Jacob to her bed. This is Reuben. The other significantly placed brother in this scene stands in the center, and he is holding a staff. This must be the other prominent brother, in a sense, the other main character in Joseph's story, Judah. That Rembrandt has given this character a staff is meant to remind us of the reference to the staff of Judah in his encounter with Tamar. This figure then is Judah, but it is also a picture of another, because right before creating this etching, Rembrandt painted a self-portrait of himself and his wife, Saskia, known today as the prodigal son in a brothel. As scholars have noted, when we compare the image of Rembrandt in this self-portrait with that of the man holding the staff in the etching, we see that they are basically the same. And if I am correct about the identity of this man in the Joseph print, then Rembrandt has chosen to merge his identity with that of Judah. When we see Judah in the Joseph etching then, We are meant to be seeing simultaneously Judah, son of Jacob, but also Rembrandt, von Rehn. Rembrandt identifies here with Judah because he too realizes that Judah will emerge as the paradigmatic penitent and familial hero of the story. This will unfold in chapters to come. But for now, we may close by reflecting in wonder on the enormity of the artistic and exegetical genius packed into a print one which reveals the profoundly painful experience of so many members of this family. The art historian E.H. Gombrich once described Rembrandt's uniqueness by reflecting that, quote, we have seen other portraits by great masters which are memorable for the way they sum up a person's character and role, but even the greatest of them may remind us of characters in fiction or actors on the stage. They are convincing and impressive, but we sense that they can only represent one side of a complex human being. Not even the Mona Lisa can always have smiled. But in Rembrandt's great portraits, wrote Gombrich, we feel face-to-face with real people. We sense their warmth, their need for sympathy, and also their loneliness and their suffering. Those keen and steady eyes that we know so well from Rembrandt's self-portraits must have been able to look straight into the human heart. End quote. The hearts of Jacob's family members have been laid bare by Rembrandt von Rehn. And Rembrandt is teaching us that in Judah's heart, we can sense even more inspiring emotional greatness yet to come. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together Monday morning, signing off.